0: Feels nice and cozy, sitting by the campfire, reflecting on the book of Philippians. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. My name is John Prine. I'm the pastor here at Community Lincoln Park. I'm so glad you've joined us this morning. So as you've probably picked up at this point, we are in week three of a four-week series on the book of Philippians. And addition, apparently, to SAS, which I suppose uh, we will discover in the Apostle Paul, Paul was a very sophisticated writer. He knew what he was doing. He was intentional, and he was composing these literary masterpieces that have affected all of the world. And so uh, this morning I want to draw your attention in week three to something Paul is doing very intentionally in holding up examples. Or maybe another way of saying it is icons. Uh, These people who could become for us the compelling vision of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, I am kind of a nerd on a lot of subjects, and uh, one of the ones that I like to read is sociology. Did I have, do I have anyone here who studied sociology in college? Anyone? Looking up in the balcony? No, good! Well, that must mean we're, we're in a very successful room uh, full of people who actually got jobs with their college degrees. Congratulations! Um, so here's, here's the funny thing about social theory. Social theory has been fascinated by the sense in which a whole society can find these individuals, right? And that these individuals become more than just the individual themselves. The individual becomes an icon. So one of uh, the easiest examples, I think, will resonate with this room is growing up myself in the 90s. I was a 90s kid. Uh, I grew up in the heyday, outside of Chicago, of the Michael Jordan era. Anyone else? Do you remember uh, Michael Jordan was so compelling that there was literally a slogan that children would chant that was, I want to be like Mike, right? So I want to be like Mike. This is the epitome of what social theorists call the icon of charismatic authority. It's the sense in which one figure can be so compelling in what they're accomplishing, what they stand for, the ideal that they embody, that to this day, I, as some of you know who happened to own a few pairs of Jordan shoes, I buy Jordans because I still want to be like Mike, right? Does anyone else feel that way? And so on a societal level, what happens is that there are these people who become for us the embodiment of an ideal. Uh, I think in the business sector of Steve Jobs or maybe Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk right now, I think in politics of kind of like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, how these individuals on their own, they just are people, but somehow in our society, they come to represent something so much more. But if that's true, that this happens sort of big picture, societal level, that often become our celebrities, our people of influence, uh, social theorists point out that this is also happening on a far more intimate and sort of communal scale. So if you think about your workplace, there is likely someone either in your field or your industry or maybe even in your office setting who is that ideal, right? They are the icon of what it looks like to either accomplish or achieve. Maybe this was a teacher for you growing up. Maybe this was a successful practitioner of whatever your industry is. Or uh, another pretty simple way, and forgive my transition here over to this subject, uh, a simple way that this happens is at the gym, Okay, so if you've ever walked into the gym, I happen to uh, go to a gym right here in Lakeview. When you walk in, you can immediately tell who the fitness trainers are, can't you? Like they often are wearing t-shirts, um, but you can tell the fitness instructor because the fitness instructor always seems to be standing like this. And then I notice they also never seem to be working out. They're always just standing there next to whoever they're with. And the person that they're inevitably instructing, right, you can kind of tell who the people being instructed are, too, because they kind of have that, like, embarrassed slump, like, I'm here, I need help. And they're, they're always the one doing the exercise. This has been me. It's like the head down in shame. But the fitness instructor stands there, and the idea is that instructor is your icon, right? You walk into the gym. That's, that's who you want to be. That's what you want to look like. You want to not have to work out at all and somehow just be standing there, looking very fit. Well, uh, because of fitness instructors as an icon, uh, our creative team here at Community had this wonderful idea that they were thinking to themselves, what would it look like if our teaching pastors were to be the fitness icons for our community? Now, I am the youngest uh, of the teaching pastors you're about to see, and I would not put myself forward as the ideal of fitness. And so I I just want you to uh, hopefully enjoy a fun little creative experiment in humiliation that our creative team put together. Go ahead and watch this. Hello, teaching pastors. Welcome. My name is Sadie. I'll be your fitness instructor for today. I'll tell you more about me later. Today is all about you. Plus, it's an opportunity for you to work on your fitness goals. Your fitness. I'm totally up for the challenge. I am so excited about today. Deep breath in as you sit
1: back up. Can you get a little
0: lower? Physical fitness is so (laughs) important to me. I am so diligent about it. Yes, I am excited. Up got it. First timer here. We'll just see how this goes. OK, so for how many of you, this is your first time in my class? Wonderful, how about first time in a fitness class this year? Great, how about first time ever? Wonderful, welcome. Sure, I'm into fitness. Fitness donut in my mouth. If you're going to talk the talk, you're going to have to walk the walk or jump the jack as the case may be. I don't normally do this kind of thing, so I'm a little nervous. I know it'll be okay. I just don't want to look like a fish out of water. They told me it was an 80s theme. Some of us haven't exercised since the 80s. I've seen stranger things. You always have the option to slow this down. Step it up. Whew, that was awesome. I feel pretty good, actually. I think I pulled a hammy. Hey, little help? Are you guys still rolling? Come on, a little help here? Ah, oh, man. Tammy, help, please. Um, yes, to our creative team, uh, to, to a fitness instructional video. I don't think that inspired any of you uh, to actually work out. Uh, also, just a quick backstory. <laughs> Ted Canaris, who is our community pastor over at Downers Grove, who was in the 80s clothes, He's a very serious person, so it was a bit of a stretch to get him in costume, but as a serious person, the whole shoot, he kept asking what's my motivation? Like, what, what character am I working with here? And he, he had a very sophisticated backstory that unfortunately the camera missed. So that's a potential, potential series we'll unpack as time goes on. Um, so if there was any point to that video, uh, it's that we, are, we find ourselves gravitating towards Icons, those who can help instruct us in how to live, this is ultimately what icons become. We look to them as an ideal because there's something about what they represent that is drawing us, that is shaping us, and even something about that fitness instructional video. There's a fitness coach at the front who's teaching us moves, right? They're showing us how to do what they did in order to look like they do or become healthy and fit like they are. As you think about that example, What we're going to find in the letter of Philippians is that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he wants to offer them some icons. He wants to offer them some examples. He wants to show them what it looks like to follow this Jesus way that he's been talking about, which if you were with us last week in his beautiful poem in Philippians 2, Paul says Jesus emptied himself. He poured out his godhood so that he could take on the role of a servant even to death. This is the way of Jesus. And Paul says, have the same mindset. You yourselves live out this way. But if you're like me, while Jesus is deeply compelling, it can sometimes be difficult to sort of flesh out what does that look like in day-to-day life. And so Paul is going to say, let me talk you through a few examples. So the first example that we heard in our passage this morning is the example of Timothy. Now, Timothy is a very interesting character. I've actually spent a lot of time Digging through Timothy, I think it's easy to miss. You've, maybe if you've uh, been around the church, you've read the Bible, you've seen Timothy. He's a significant figure in the New Testament. He was sort of this disciple under Paul that Paul would often write to or send out or have with him. But if you dive into Timothy's backstory, in Acts 16, Paul is going to come to this small town of Lystra. In fact, archaeologists suggest Lystra probably had a couple hundred people. This was an insignificant place. But there, we discover this disciple named Timothy— who were told, and this is Acts 16.1, his mother was Jewish and a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, literally, that's the only backstory that we're given to Timothy, but if you sit with this for just a moment, what this meant in Roman culture was that Timothy was straddling two very distinct ethnic identities. His mother is Jewish his father is Greek. Now, an even deeper cut of this would realize that Timothy, as someone whose mother was Jewish, meant that by, her mother, by his mother having his father be a non-Jew, his mother was technically breaking Mosaic law. So there likely would have been some kind of ostracizing in the Jewish community. Timothy would not have really fit in as a Jew. And yet, with his father being Greek, Timothy also has still this Jewish ethnicity from his mother. And so similarly, Timothy's not quite fitting in in the Greek world. In fact, scholars have kind of speculated we don't have a ton of information, but because Paul shows up and we get no more information about Timothy's father, most scholars suggest that Timothy's father either died when he was young and thus failed to circumcise him, which was a rite of Jewish customs, or his father despised the Judaism of his mother so much that he refused to circumcise him, and thus was ashamed of this son who is straddling these two ethnicities. Now, I realize that's kind of sad. It's a a bit of a tragic backstory, and yet the beautiful thing in Acts 16 is that this man, Paul, shows up who is on fire for Jesus, and as Paul is there, he encounters this young man named Timothy, and Paul brings Timothy with him. In fact, he adopts Timothy. So now Timothy goes from being fatherless, sort of ethnically confused, to receiving the fullness of Jesus Christ as passed on to him from his spiritual father, Paul. And as uh, Paul goes to write to the church in Philippi, listen to what Paul says about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Isn't that just off the cuff? reading those verses afresh with that backstory of Timothy's fatherlessness, it's profoundly beautiful that Paul sends out his spiritual son, Timothy, and holds him up as this example to the community. But this gets just a little bit deeper. Timothy, if you go through the references that Paul gives us, there's not a lot, but as as we have all these letters from Paul, Paul often will have these asides to Timothy. What we discover is that Paul is always telling Timothy to be bold, to speak up, to resist those who are coming in with false teachings. In fact, there's one very sort of amusing verse where Paul is an aside. You can tell there's just a lot of intimacy and familiarity. Paul will say, hey, Timothy, make sure you drink just a little bit of wine. I know how weak your stomach is. Now, all of this sort of paints a picture that if we have Paul, who is the fiery, or as Lizzie Cho would say, the sassy apostle— We have Timothy over here, on the other hand, who all scholars would suggest was probably mild-mannered, was probably a little bit timid, uh, was maybe even constantly needing to be bolstered because he had a bit of an anxious personality. And I think if you're holding all of these sort of pieces of his backstory together, you see this picture of Timothy as sort of the opposite personality of Paul. And yet what I love about this passage is that Paul lifts Timothy up. And did you notice what Paul says you're going to get from Timothy? He says, Timothy is the one who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Genuine concern. Have you ever met a person who showed you genuine concerns for your needs? It's that person where as you're sort of in the flow of conversation, they ask that question, all of us ask each other, hey, how's your week going? How's work? and you then say that sort of half-measured, like, eh, it's been all right, you know, not, not really that great week. They're the person who slows down and says, well, tell me what happened. Like, what's, what's going on? What do you need? Is, is there anything I can do to, to help you? Uh, there was a photo recently uh, from Ukraine that sort of captured vividly what a person like this who shows genuine concern from others looks like. I don't know if any of you saw this photo, It was actually taken by Francesco Malvolta. And it was the platform of a train station in Poland as immigrants, particularly mothers with children, were first arriving as the war broke out. I mean, isn't this so vivid? Like, this this is not something that you do to get social credit or capital. This is not an empty gesture, sending a check or... You know, gesturing towards your own greatness of caring. Instead, this is genuine concern. This is women and men who understood that as these mothers are fleeing a war that is breaking out, the thing they would need most is just someone who's ready to hand them the essentials for what their lives need. I wonder as we think about Timothy and this example that Paul holds up for us, this icon. I think that sometimes here in the church, we can often be big and bold in our preaching. We can tell you that you need to charge the hill for the faith, that you need to go out and you need to be a leader here in the city. You need to share your faith boldly. You need to show grand, bold gestures. In fact, we should all be a little bit more like Paul, and yet here, I love that Paul's saying, do you know what the church really needs? We need some more Timothy's We need those who show genuine concern for the needs of others. Just think about your small group. Even as you think about interacting with each other here this morning, what would it look like for you to show genuine concern? Is it a text message? I've found the simplicity of a text message that surprises a friend. That text message that isn't asking for something, is not trying to plan social events, but that's as simple as, hey, how's your day going? Hey, what's going on this week? How's work going? Hey, I heard your family was in town. How did that trip with your family go? Could we become a church that looks more like Timothy? If that's icon number one, we'll turn now to icon number two that Paul is going to hold up in Epaphroditus. Could everybody say with me, Epaphroditus. Ready? We'll do one more time together. Epaphroditus. Great job. You are mastering the Greek language (laughs) one name at a time. So uh, Epaphroditus is rather interesting as a character. Again, we don't get a ton about him, but let's go ahead and read what Paul says about him, and then I'll back up and give you a little bit more context. This is Philippians 2:25 to 30. Paul's going to say, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. Now, this is one of those moments in a letter of Paul, where if you're reading quick, you can kind of get confused. What's going on? And Paul is writing here with the familiarity of a correspondent, someone who is writing to a real church about a real person that had kind of a shared context and history between both parties. What most scholars think happened here is that Epaphroditus was likely one of the leaders of the church in Philippi. And as the church in Philippi heard that Paul was imprisoned, interestingly in the Roman system, if they put you under house arrest, Rome took no responsibility to care for your needs during your imprisonment, which is kind of a radical painful notion. If you didn't have money, if you didn't have friends, if you didn't have family, then your household imprisonment could look rather bleak and miserable. Yet, because Rome was an honor society, it was common in those days that if you were in prison, then at the very least your family and hopefully a few good friends would sort of pool together money to be able to send you the resources you need to get through the imprisonment. So the church in Philippi, would have known, interestingly, that Paul, when he was there last starting the church in Philippi, that Paul had been imprisoned when he was with them. <laughs> in some ways, ironically, Paul was imprisoned at first because of the church in Philippi, and then Paul was released from Philippi, and then Paul got imprisoned again. This is kind of a common theme for Paul. Yet the church in Philippi would have likely been paying attention and would have said, Paul is, Paul is ours. Paul is our our pastor, Paul, is our teacher. He's our apostle. Paul's the one who helped start our church. Paul has sacrificed so much for us. We need to take care of Paul. We've got to gather our money. To get, let's pool some resources, and let's be the family that Paul needs right now in this moment. So the church would have gathered up their money. In those days, a trip from Philippi to Rome would have taken anywhere from 40 days to two months. Think about that. If you, like me, get frustrated by a four-hour flight, imagine a 40-hour flight. Imagine a 40-day trip, and yet this is what Epaphroditus signs up for. Epaphroditus, as a leader of the church, gathers these funds, gets ready, probably takes a few friends with him because money needed to be protected as you were on the road, and he would have embarked on this long 40-day journey. Well, now that, I think, helps to understand then why it was such a big deal that Epaphroditus got sick. He, in fact, probably fell sick somewhere on the journey, maybe even as he was approaching Rome. And in those days, there was nowhere near the medical services that we have now. And so Epaphroditus nears death as he is on this sacrificial mission trying to deliver funds to support Paul's needs. And yet incredibly, incredibly, we're told that rather than turn back, rather than immediately head home, Epaphroditus finishes the mission he completes it. He goes all the way through with it. He shows up in Rome after near death to personally hand Paul the funds that the church in Philippi had gathered to care for Paul's needs. As Paul's reflecting on this, he wants the church in Philippi to know that this is why Epaphroditus likely was delayed and Paul returning him to them, and yet the church in Philippi clearly was distressed, like, what happened to Epaphroditus? We heard he was sick. Has he died? What's going on? And Paul tells them, hey, Epaphroditus is coming back to you, and I want you to know he completed your mission to me. He brought you my funds, and he should now be honored because of the sacrifice he made on my behalf to complete your mission. As we think about Epaphroditus, I think the, the point here is that Epaphroditus encourages us as an icon to take huge risks, actually to follow through on the mission, to follow through on those causes that the church that Jesus is inviting us into, follow through on those relationships that we're set up to serve, follow through. And yet, e- even more than that, I, I just want to pause on this for one second. I've been thinking all week about Epaphroditus, and I've been asking myself this question. What is it that would cause someone like Epaphroditus to complete the mission. Like, why would Epaphroditus take such a huge risk? And now I'm speculating just a tiny bit, but my hunch is this, that Epaphroditus loved Paul. I think that's it. I think Epaphroditus loved Paul so much because he had experienced the love of Paul. He had received from Paul probably the very good news Of Jesus Christ, Epaphroditus says, of course I would put my life on the line for you, Paul. Of course I would risk everything to deliver what you need. Paul, your love has so radically changed me that I now live out of love for you. And of course, the love circling between Paul and Epaphroditus is the love of Jesus Christ himself. What would it look like for your life to be so gripped by that kind of love that you yourself were willing to lean in and to take risks, to take risks for this church, to take risks for the community that you found yourself here with in the city, to take risks for a bigger purpose, a cause of what Jesus is inviting you to do with your life. Uh, I recently, this last week, some of you have been hearing the drama, had my battery fail on our car. This was a newish car that we got. It was only a couple years old. It makes no sense why the battery failed. I am woefully under-equipped as a mechanic, and so immediately... (laughs) I am overwhelmed, and yet the incredible thing was that we were with these two couples that we've had a long history friendship with, they're some of our closest friends, and almost immediately without blinking, this one friend of mine goes, oh, you can borrow our car. No, go ahead, you can borrow our car, that's fine, we'll send it to the mechanic, you can borrow our car, and for this last week, we've been borrowing their car, and every day as I get into the car, I I have this moment where I think to myself, why would someone do that, (laughs) right? Like, why would someone risk their car, especially sending it into the city? Uh, Who would be that crazy? Well, uh, this friend would respond, I'm sure, if you asked him. Well, we love love you. We love you, John. That's why we do it. Uh, As the week was winding down, uh, this friend needed the car back. There was going to be something this weekend. They needed a second car. My wife and I were already starting to sort of turn the gears, and we were going to have to take a car out, and we were going to get another car in, and we needed to get to the car rental place to rent a car. We were looking at how expensive rental cars were on top of the expense of fixing the car, and it was just starting to pile up, and we were getting really stressed. And then all of a sudden, we heard from this other couple who said, oh, we'll let them borrow our car so that you can continue to borrow their car. Now, this sounds like madness, <laughs> and it is. It is madness. I am living in the madness, and yet if there's any If there's any thrust to this madness, it is the madness of love, is it not? Love that cares so deeply that it is willing to take risks for the mission. Now, as I say this, don't you want to live with that kind of risk? Don't you want to live with that kind of love where you care deeply enough about something that you're willing to take risks, even, Paul says, to risk your very life for something so much bigger than you? That's what Epaphroditus was doing. And that's why as Paul holds Epaphroditus up to us, Paul says, honor him. Honor him for the risks he took. Honor him for the love that he had. There's one last example Paul is going to hold up. That's going to be the example of himself. Uh, If we were to move just a little bit more slowly through chapter 3, the chapter's transition from 2 to 3, talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus to Paul sort of turning to these he calls the dogs. He says in verse 2, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, that phrase, watch out for the dogs, kind of startled and surprised me. I did just a little digging on it. It's actually kind of fun that the turn of phrase Paul is using, and he's got a little bit of innuendo in it, is that dogs, that phrase, look out for the dogs is the sign that would have been on Roman homes if there was a watchdog who guarded the homes, much like we have today, beware of dogs, right? So Paul is sort of playing with this, beware of dogs, beware of watchdogs. Yet even more, in Jewish custom, it was often the Gentiles who were sort of derogatively named the dogs. These are the ones who are non-Jews, who are non-elect in God's covenant purposes with his people Israel. So if you track with Paul and what he's doing, Paul is highlighting this group of people who in all likelihood were Jewish Pharisees, Jewish teachers of the law, who were trying to convince everyone in the church in Philippi that they needed to come back to the Jewish customs, that essentially they needed to come back to religion. And Paul ironically says, watch out for those dogs. Beware of the guard dogs who are trying to pull you back into religion. Now this is where Paul is going to turn towards himself. And I just want to make this connection for you. I think as we talk about icons, as we talk about examples, the pressure maybe even right now for you can begin to mount that you start to think to yourself, man, look at these fitness instructors. They're doing really advanced moves. It just feels like a lot of pressure. Like if I'm going to be a Timothy, if I'm going to be an Epaphroditus, like I need to start doing a lot of good things. I need to start Praying more, probably. I need to read that Bible app that they keep talking about. I need to attend small group. I mean, there's there's probably more things that John's about to share. And this is the crucial piece that Paul always turns us back to. Paul in this transition is going to say, if you think these examples are about doing good enough works to either impress God or impress other people, then you've entirely missed the good news of the gospel. Paul will hold himself up in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, he says, if someone thinks that they should have reasons to put confidence in their flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul says, I've done it all. I've covered all of the bases. I've been the best religious person you can possibly imagine. Yet, Let's allow Paul to finish. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish, emptiness, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. This is what Paul's really getting at. If you think the icons, our examples, are here as pressure for you to do more, for you to work harder, then you're missing what Jesus has already done for you. In fact, Paul is going to say, you can spend the rest of your life being as religious as you want, and guess what? It's not going to mean a thing because the joy, the hope, that love that Epaphroditus was living out of, that is the love that can only be poured onto you by God himself that can only be given to us in Jesus's offering for us. Here is the good news for you this morning, friends, as we hold up these icons and examples. There is nothing you can do to earn or to achieve that identity of belovedness and righteousness that we are all so hungry and craving for. But in Jesus Christ, Paul offers us this picture of himself where he says, pour out all your prestige. Pour out all your credentials. Pour out all of the ways you've served this church or other churches. Pour out all of your sins. Pour out all of your misbehaviors. Pour it all out because the only thing that actually matters is knowing Christ, receiving Christ, being one with Christ. Listen as Paul sort of takes us up into the horizons as you almost see Paul looking out to the end of his life, considering all that he's tried to do or accomplish, and this is what Paul's going to say. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. you hear this strange tension and contradiction in Paul's vision as he offers us the example of himself. He says, nothing I've done before is accumulating for my value or worth, and yet I continue pressing on. I'm running faster and faster as I'm pursuing more and more fixatedly and focused the goal, Jesus Christ, this resurrection from the dead that Jesus offers us in himself. I read one New Testament scholar who had this great image that he played with in the race where he says, trust in God's grace did not make Paul less active than the Judaizers but rather set him free now to run without watching his feet, without counting his steps, without competing with other servants of Christ. Isn't that good that Paul, trusting in God's grace, is now able to run without watching his feet, without counting his steps, without competing with other servants of Christ. Friends, that is the good news that Paul wants to share with you, the example he's trying to offer. What if you could run this race towards Jesus without constantly competing or counting your steps, but instead to trust freely in this grace that Jesus offers us? If there's any central theme that moves through this chapter three of Philippians. And I encourage you this week, as we've been reading through the book of Philippians, for you to dive in yourselves to unpack all of this further, especially if you're connected to one of our small groups right now. Uh, But if there's any theme from a literary standpoint of what Paul's doing, Paul's social theory is all about actually one icon that these three examples, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and himself, are each trying to imitate. And that is ultimately the example of Jesus himself. Uh, Paul said earlier, we covered it last week in Philippians 2, he says, Jesus is the one who modeled not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Jesus is the one who ultimately humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it was Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. This this is our true example. So in just a minute, we're going to gather around communion, uh, coming to receive this cup for each of us to set our eyes once more on Jesus. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Spirit of the living God, we ask you now to come and stir our imaginations. Stir us with these examples, Lord. Stir us with the ones who have been faithful to you, Stir us with the ones who had genuine concern. Stir us with those who love so deeply they were willing to risk everything for the mission. And Lord, stir us with your example, yourself, as we continue to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.